Good evening, my friends. Good evening, one and all, and welcome to another edition of Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, welcoming you once again to another edition of this broadcast. And what a broadcast we have lined up for you tonight, here on the 22nd of November 2011. And, of course, I'm broadcasting to you all the way from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it's already the 23rd of November. But for most of you, uh, depending where you are listening to me live right now, it is probably still the 22nd of November. And, of course, that is a date that will live in infamy to all of the people who, all of the concerned Americans and citizens around the world who know that that date marks the solemn occasion of the anniversary of the the shots heard around the world, really, the coup d'etat in America that took place on the 22nd of November 1963 in Dallas, Texas, of course, with reference to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And tonight we're going to be talking to a researcher who some of you out there might already know. He goes by the name of Blind JFK, the Blind JFK Researcher, and of course he can be found at youtube.com slash blindjfk, where he has a plethora, a host of a slew of videos on this subject, which he has obviously spent many, many, many years researching in great depth. His real name is Charles Ocelli, and it's great to have him on the program, on the broadcast for the first time. So, Charles, it's great to speak to you tonight. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, James. How are you? I'm doing very well, uh, all things considered. But, of course, this is the 48th anniversary of the JFK assassination, and, of course, a very solemn occasion something that uh, I think a lot of the listeners out there will be reflecting on today as we stand here now almost a half century since the, the really terrible events of that day and how they've really changed the course of American history and world history, as I'm sure you're all well too well aware. But, uh, but before we get into tonight's subject, which will be Lee Harvey Oswald, the supposed lone nut behind the JFK assassination, in this first uh, few minutes of this uh, short segment, perhaps we can just uh, talk a little bit about yourself and your own background with this case. All right. Well, you know, I uh, developed an interest in this when I was uh, finishing high school, and I was beginning a career as a musician, actually. And I started to travel, and as I traveled, uh, I had time to read and started reading about it. And initially, uh, truthfully, I, I actually thought that, you know, what I was taught in the history books was you know, an accurate uh, portrayal. You know, this uh, single assassin had uh, obviously killed our president, and he had done this, uh, you know, with with a rifle from an elevated position and so on and so forth. And there was about two paragraphs, I would say, devoted in any history book in, in my uh, grade school or middle school or high school experience. You might find two paragraphs at most devoted to this. And uh, as I started to read and learn, what had actually transpired and started to look into the investigations, and uh, and I was traveling, I would find myself in different towns and stop and uh, talk to people where I could, just by basically picking up a local phone book and seeing if the name matched a name and pick up a phone during my spare time and say, you know, hello, are you this person? And uh, that's how it started for me, by saying, you know, I've read this about you in a book and I was curious. Now, a lot of people hung up on me, but some of them decided to talk to me. And the more that I did this and the more I read, the more I discovered that the official explanation was far from conclusive. 
Well, that is a fascinating story, and I think it's one that a lot of the listeners can relate to because, uh, absolutely, I think people's um, believability in the in the official story of the JFK assassination is inversely related to how much they actually know about that assassination. So I think just like yourself, many people out there have come to this through a process of learning just how uh, just how wrong they were about some of the, the basic supposed truths that we've been told all our lives about what really happened that day. But um, I've been directing people to youtube.com slash blindjfk, but do you have any personal website or any other um, places people can go to find out about your work? Thus far, that's, that's been my uh, main project. Okay, excellent. Well, let's, let's leave it there. We're going to come back, as I say, to talk about Lee Harvey Oswald and who he really was. But let's take a few-minute break, and we'll be right back with more Corbett Report Radio right after these messages. No money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirts, ain't got no sweater. All right, welcome back, folks. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on this 22nd of November 2011. And tonight we're talking to Charles Ocelli, a.k.a. the Blind JFK Researcher. And tonight we're going to be getting in-depth into Lee Harvey Oswald, the supposed lone assassin of John F. Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963. And as I've said uh, in the lead-up to tonight's broadcast, I think this is one of the real Achilles heel of the official story of uh, JFK and what supposedly happened in Dallas that day. Because as, uh, as anyone who has spent any amount of time looking into Lee Harvey Oswald's backstory knows, at the very, very least, the least we can say is that the story is vastly more complicated than we're led to believe that that Lee Harvey Oswald was just some attention-seeking lone nut who was a uh, die-hard communist. I think we can easily discredit that view tonight. So I haven't talked to Charles about this yet before, so I don't know what his specific views on, on Lee Harvey Oswald are, but perhaps, uh, perhaps Charles, perhaps we can start tonight by talking a little bit about Lee Harvey Oswald's early years and, and what we know about um, who he was as a child and his family background. Well, you're, you're talking about... Uh a varied record because there have been a lot of different uh, publications which have tried to break down and explain to the American public, especially these things, the, the formative years, where they contend that, uh, you know, his father had died before he was his birth. Uh, his mother had been supposedly emotionally unstable or what have you. Uh, there's been a lot of things said. And, it really lends itself more to drawing the narrative that you have this malcontent from early childhood, which I think was more designed to support the idea, like you said, that there was this lone nut who just was an attention seeker, which, by the way, one of the few assassins in American presidential history, which there have been a few, who did not claim responsibility even. As a matter of fact, his only public statements uh, immediately following the assassination included, I have committed no acts of violence. Uh, you know, I have shot no one. I have not been charged with that. I mean, these are the statements that he made in front of uh, hordes of reporters. So it, it's a rather interesting thing that if you look at his childhood, a lot of people cherry-pick the information to support their own conclusions. Um now, there are some who utilize part of his childhood 
like when he was growing up, he enjoyed a, a television show, which was called uh, My Three Lives or something like this. And, and the, the, the story yeah, is I believe about, it's called I Led Three Lives. Yes, you're correct. And, and that's, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have that in front of me, but the fact is that it, it's not one of these stories that I put a whole lot of stock in. Uh, you know, they, they try and draw him as this, you know, well, he decided to be a spy sort of on his own, and he was in his own little world. But, you know, again, we, we to this day uh, are still contending with trying to get the government to release its own records about him and about everything that was involved in the assassination. Specifically right now, even, uh, the, there was the Assassination Records Review Board in the mid-'90s, which was uh, brought about because of the JFK film. Okay, now, when this came into law, this was a law that was passed that, made it so that all government agencies were supposed to bring forth all their records relating to the assassination and so on and so forth. They also wanted all the private records. Uh, you know, if you had uh, information in your own possession, they would want it. And to be in compliance with the law, they went around and did all of the proper things uh, to, uh, to assure that this would happen, uh, to create this Records Collection Act, which does sit at the National Archives now, which I've been through various portions of, Okay, but to this day, ever since the review board disappeared, uh, because it was a temporary uh, government agency under the executive branch, it um, to this day we still have resistance from different agencies that were supposed to release things afterwards based on a time period because for national security it couldn't be released for another 10 years and so on and so forth. And there are various documents that were planned to be released which have not been released. And in, and specifically, which would mostly pertain to Oswald, you know, you have the Office of Naval Intelligence, which absolutely has been uh, completely resistant. Now, when the act was first passed, there was a uh, lieutenant which was assigned as a liaison to the board and was in compliance, was cooperating, was actually traveling throughout the country and finding the localized records of the Office of Naval Intelligence. Uh, you know, to see if anything pertained to the assassination, Oswald, anyone involved. And this lieutenant, when in the midst of cooperating with the board, uh, was actually brought be before an Article uh, Article 32 hearing and disciplined, okay? And at this point in time, uh, we are still trying to get oversight for, for the Congress to uh, allow an oversight committee to reinforce the enforcement end of this law, because once the board disappeared, the enforcement mechanism for it was gone, you know? And so to this day, the people that uh, claim, like like a Vincent Bugliosi or uh, Gerald Posner that says, well, now all the records are out, and as you can see, there's nothing to Oswald, there's nothing to any of this. Well, you know, gentlemen, these things have not been released still. You know, there are still thousands upon thousands of records. And when someone states that there is a document sitting, and we're talking about at least hundreds of documents, if not thousands, if not maybe millions, okay, because since they are classified, it's barely knowable what they are. The fact is that when you talk about one document, it can be between one page and 500. You know, it, it, it ranges uh, so wildly that you have no clue what amount of information is there. If it's redundant, what it is. But the fact is that if Oswald was the lone assassin, if he had done this all by himself, 
if there was no government involvement at all, then what is the sense of withholding even a single piece of paper? This question never seems to be answered. We're attempting to do that now, and there, there are re researchers even currently working on this. And I, and I think that this is, um, you know, applicable to any uh, group of people trying to seek the truth about any of these deep political uh, situations. I mean, 9-11, people say, well, 10 years have gone by and we're still in search of that. Yeah, well, this is nearly 50 years, and the resistance is still there, despite the fact that, you know, all the bureaucrats have essentially gone. I mean, J. Edgar Hoover is gone, and all of the presidents that could have or would have served at that time are already gone. It doesn't matter. So this kind of thing is... Uh, you, you can actually learn about this more, because I know you want to discuss Oswald more specifically, but this is part of the reason for the incomplete record, though. You know, you must understand that even in government hands, they have not released all these files. So I, I think that that's a point that needs to be made. Um, you know, if you choose I just to... want to say, I, absolutely, I agree with you, and I think that uh, where, there, where there's smoke, there's fire, or where there's resistance, there's something um, to, to be resisting, and there, it, we have to ask about these records and where, why they are, there is still the resistance at, the, at, at even the agency level to releasing things like this. And you bring up, of course, the Office of Naval Intelligence, the ONI, and that, I think, leads into a discussion of, of uh, Oswald's early years in the Marine Corps and, and how he got into that and, and things of that nature. So perhaps we can transition into that. Sure. Well, that's another curiosity, you see, because, after all, you have uh, a Marine, okay? Now, this is a guy who joins as early as he can. He is there for about, you know, a few years. He uh, winds up being court-martialed twice, by the way, uh, one time for an un unauthorized weapon that he uh, supposedly shot himself with, by the way, and uh, and another time for insubordination. But meanwhile, this guy gets himself a hardship discharge, okay, which is not an easy thing to come by in the Marine Corps, by the way. And only, uh, you know, within three days of that, he's on his way to Russia, you know, now, the reason why the Office of Naval Intelligence obviously is applicable to this is because he worked at uh, at Sugi, which you're familiar with, uh, because it's in Japan, all right, and, and that was uh, a radar base uh, and also uh, the point of origin for U-2 spy planes that flew over part, parts of the Soviet Union. And uh, this is a place where this guy worked. Now, it, it's contestable what level of knowledge he had about the U-2 spy plane or about any particular programs, okay? But, you know, from some of the people that I've spoken to and some of the information I've seen, he had anywhere from little knowledge to possibly being involved in counterintelligence. Now, if the Office of Naval Intelligence has this kind of stuff, you know, in, their, uh, in any of their uh, files, what would be the harm at this point in allowing us to know this? You know, um, but meanwhile, like I say, the strange odyssey that uh, took place there is that this, you know, this this Marine who is a very young man, okay, um, he, he's dead by the time he's 24. A lot of people forget that. You know, it was his. Uh, it was only I believe it was October 18th was his 24th birthday. So you know, a month later he's dead. So this is not a guy with a long life and a long history. And yet it's rather complex and still shadowed by uh, so many different possibilities because, like I say, the incompleteness of the record. 
Um, now, this also begins, uh, you know, discussions where there's records that uh, that do exist that show uh, individuals being in two places at once that supposedly had the same name and uh, all these other kinds of things. And then meanwhile, when he comes back to the United States after supposedly being disillusioned in Russia, he uh, brings along a wife. And the, the story gets even stranger. Stranger and stranger, one might even say, yes, absolutely. Okay, well, let's let's stop there. We'll take a few minute break, but we'll be right back right after these messages here on Corporate Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com, coming to you tonight from all the way from Japan, where I am currently looking at my copy of Jim Mars' uh, uh, seminal tome, Crossfire, uh, The Plot That Killed Kennedy. I'm just looking at the page with the reproduction of uh, Oswald's own medical care record uh, as part of his uh, tour of duty in the Marine Corps at Atsugi Air Force Base in Japan and the listing from the uh, 16th of September, 1958, showing that he had contracted uh, gonorrhea in the line of duty, not due to his own misconduct, which has always been a very, very intriguing part of that puzzle. But going back to our tonight's guest, Charles Ocelli, a.k.a. the Blind JFK Researcher at youtube.com slash blindjfk. Uh, Charles, let's talk a little bit more about um, the transition from uh, Oswald's time in the Marines to his... Uh, Interesting sojourn in Russia and what happened there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that that uh, that medical record is uh, particularly interesting because it does lead to the obvious question: How is it that you would contract gonorrhea in the line of duty? You know. Uh, but further things that happened medically, which uh, occurred in Russia, by the way, he goes to Russia. Now, this is like I say, this Marine that uh, after the hardship discharge because supposedly his mother was injured and he needed to take care of her, leaves right after and uh, travels to Russia. And within a few days, uh, he has this guide. Her name is Rima. And uh, she's traveling with him because at that time they had a sort of Soviet uh, official travel agency that uh, assigned people, you know, guides sort of babysitters while they were in country to make sure that, you know, no poor impressions were made about the Soviet uh, Populous or about the government or anything like this, you know, sort of public relations, but for the for the limited tourists that they received. Well, while he's doing this, he uh, decides to befriend her in some ways, and it, what happens next is that he declares to her that he wants to apply for Soviet citizenship. Now, again, this is one of these things that just seems so disjointed, almost as though you know a single person could not possibly have done this. You know, because the, the line of reasoning is rather odd. You know, uh, you go shortly from being a, you know, a gung-ho Marine that can't wait to join. I, as a matter of fact, he tried to join earlier uh, than he was allowed to. And then, uh, you know, and his family were all military. Uh, his, his, his two brothers had served as well. And, and meanwhile, he's in Russia and says, I don't want to be an American citizen anymore. 
So he starts to go through the process of taking care of this with only a few days left on his visa. And uh, he goes down to uh, meet with them at, uh, oh, I would say it was only a few hours before. I believe his visa was supposed to expire at like 8 p.m. And he's brought down at uh, maybe, oh, I don't know, uh, noontime or something to discuss this with one of the officials. So they bring him to the um, agency, the, the proper Soviet official that's supposed to be there, and the Soviet official listens to him, and he says, well, I'm just fascinated by the great Soviet people, and I want to become a Soviet citizen. And, uh, you know, so reportedly, according to uh, one of his friends in Russia, uh, Dr. Ernest, now now please bear with me on the uh, pronunciations here, but I think his name is uh, Titovitz, something like this, Russian names throw me a little. But anyway, this is his friend in Russia. According to him, the guy says to him, well, you know, the Soviet Union is great in literature only, and you're denied to stay here. So upon doing that, what does he do? He goes back to his hotel room. He uh, sits there for a little while, quite upset, quite crushed that he can't become a Soviet citizen, even though he was not, you know, not so many years before a gung-ho American boy with his troubles and whatnot. And what does he do? He slashes one of his wrists. So now the Soviets have a problem on their hands because, you know, first of all, they have an American on their soil that attempted to kill himself, and they take him to the hospital and get him the proper care, uh, which time, if you read the uh, the accounts of the uh, medical people there, they sort of said, well, it just seemed more like a hysterical gesture uh, as opposed to a real suicide attempt, but uh, that's all they could do. And meanwhile, throughout all this, uh, although many people claim that he had an excellent command of the Russian language, all of these people commented on the language barrier problem, okay, at least from the accounts that I read. Now, in addition to this, uh, they, they take care of that for him, and then they say, well, okay, we're not going to give you Soviet citizenship, but we'll let you stay here as a resident alien. And he proceeds to spend about three years in Russia, which is a rather curious thing for, again, any American to do, especially at that time, and uh, quite a bit so for one that had been, you know, like I say, a gung-ho Marine who could not wait to join, even uh, to be the legal age. Now, you, you bring up the language issue, and that's one that's always intrigued me, because I understand he had special training uh, during his Marine Corps training time in, in languages? Well, the idea from that comes from uh, some Warren Commission testimony where uh, where one uh, uh, particular person who was, uh, so whose name escapes me at the moment had stated that, uh, well, it, you know what, it's accounted for in the JFK movie. And, and believe it or not, that movie is uh, quite a bit more accurate than most of its critics would like us to believe. Uh, of course, things are embellished because it's Hollywood and all, but the fact is that comes from a real situation where uh, one of the uh, military people that they had interviewed with the Warren Commission uh, had told them that, yeah, he had received some sort of training at uh, Monterey School, and uh, he had only gotten half as many right as he had gotten wrong on a Russian exam. Hmm. But I need to tell you that with the differences between English and Russian, that would be quite an amazing thing if he did it. Absolutely. All right. Well, okay, let's take a few minutes to regroup our thoughts. We'll be right back right after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Sometime I'm on a red flag, Jack. Sometime I get a hop in. 
Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight we're talking to the blind JFK researcher, a.k.a. Charles Ocelli, who can be found at YouTube.com slash BlindJFK. And tonight we're talking about Lee Harvey Oswald, the supposed lone assassin, assassin behind the JFK assassination, and all of the very interesting details behind that. And we have a nice big segment coming up here to get into more of the uh, more in depth about his time as he returned from the Soviet Union to America. But before we get into that, I just thought I'd like to let uh, the listeners out there know uh, that there's a huge story that's uh, breaking right now, a bombshell breaking news story at ClimateGate.tv, one of my other subsidiary websites, where it looks like we are having a ClimateGate 2.0 situation where a whole fresh new batch of emails have been released from the very same climatologists, Michael Mann and Bill Jones and Kevin Trenberth and all the ones that were implicated in ClimateGate 1 back in 2009. So a really big story that I'm going to be covering. Um, um, there's only a, a little story that I've posted to, just to let people know about it right now, but I'll be covering in much greater detail on ClimateGate.tv in the coming days. But returning to tonight's conversation with Charles Ocelli and talking about uh, the interesting movements of Lee Harvey Oswald and of course, we were just talking about his uh, his sojourn in the Soviet Union as a resident alien for nearly three years, uh, during which time he met and married his uh, wife, and and then he applied to and and was allowed to return to America and just waltz back into the country. And so the official story goes was not even debriefed by the CIA, but perhaps we can get more details on that from uh, Mr. Ocelli. Well, another interesting uh, fact there is that the State Department of the United States offered and loaned him the money to travel, which is rather interesting, and that record is in the government's official record even. Uh, you know, they loaned him something like 400 and something dollars and 17 cents, and uh, which was a particularly decent amount of money at the time, and uh, he paid it back in a rather interesting fashion as well, which I've always found curious, and uh, another researcher, uh, Walt Brown, Oh, he loves to bring this up, but the fact is that his first payment was something like fifteen dollars and seventeen cents, and then uh, and then all of a sudden a, a large bulk payment occurs after that during a time when uh, we know from his work records that there was practically no way he could have earned that amount of money. But uh, there's all kinds of curiosities all throughout his financial and uh, and other records all throughout this time, and uh, upon his return to the United States. We, we begin to see a lot of very curious movements that uh, really make no sense. If you try to draw a, a decent timeline from A to B to C, in some cases he goes from A to B to B, you know, and uh, it, it's just, it's rather, rather curious. But uh, as I said, yeah, he had no trouble bringing back his Russian wife, which again was rather strange. Uh, like I said, they lent him the money, and he comes back to the United States. Lands in New York, in fact. Uh, but, you know, uh, part of the reason why the, the, the Soviet uh, uh, situation is so strange is because even with the documents that the, uh, the, the former Soviet Union provided to us, uh, you, you, you find more sense in their timelines of things, you know. And despite uh, the ideas that he was just there as a tourist or anything else, we find that uh, during the House Select Committee in, in, uh, in the 70s, that at one point, uh, 
there was a testimony that even related that he was part of a, a program that we learned about later, which was a false defector program, where we sent a- agents that they called uh, dangles of sorts uh, into the Soviet Union to try and get them to uh, to penetrate behind the enemy curtain, if you will. You know, uh, the interesting part about that is, uh, you know, but but you find all kinds of odd sort of connections to government agencies after he returns to the United States. And I think uh, it probably began long before that, and I think that the strangeness of his return and his odd arrival in the Soviet Union right there suggested. But aside from my opinion, you have uh, all kinds of individuals that are in, involved in all sorts of government agencies after that, like uh, William Walter of the, uh, the FBI office in New Orleans. Uh, he describes uh, a teletype that disappeared, uh, again, something that was illustrated in that JFK movie. And he explained this to Jim Garrison, which is a story unto itself. Mr. Garrison is the only person to have attempted to prosecute someone because, uh, as we all know, Oswald did not live long enough to be brought before uh, before a judge or before a jury. So... William S. Walter, like I said, had had testified uh, to them and had explained things to Garrison about Oswald's connection to the to to the FBI, and uh, also had testified about this teletype, which apparently warned of an assassination attempt, which was not connected to Oswald, uh, so, so far as we know, in Dallas, and those teletypes disappeared according to this man's testimony. Now you might say, well, this is one guy and who's this, you know, or maybe he's mistaken or whatever else. But I tend to think that the night clerk at the New Orleans FBI uh, office would not be mistaken about a statement like that coming across where he says that it was actually over the words from the director, which at that time would have been J. Edgar Hoover. And Hoover did not send things like this out to his field offices lightly. So, at any rate, uh, there was other implications of this kind of thing where uh, the uh, the uh, district attorney of um, I'm sorry the attorney general excuse me of uh, of Texas Wagner Carr also contacted the Warren Commission after the president's death and told him that uh, he had learned that Oswald had a confidential informant number with the FBI and gave them the number uh, now these kind of things are dismissed by uh, by individuals who want to support the lone nut scenario, they say, oh, well, that was just a reporter who told this, you know, the Attorney General of Texas some false information. Well, you know, how much false information went around that ties together? You know, uh, you have the FBI admittedly destroying evidence uh, in, in the case of uh, James P. Hosty, who apparently received some sort of note from Oswald that... Uh, has been described as all sorts of a different threat or whatever else, but we have no idea of the contents of that note because uh, Gordon Shanklin uh, ordered Hosty to destroy it uh, once Oswald was dead. I mean, on November 24th, right after Oswald was killed, he handed it to him and handed him the memo and ordered it destroyed. And this is what he testified to uh, again before the House Select Committee in the 70s. And, uh, you know... Why do we have the destruction and withholding of evidence when you have all these curiosities? I mean, is it not possible that if they gave us 
what they have, we could put these things together and maybe put some of these things to rest. What do you think of that? Yeah. Well, that's the obvious question, isn't it? And you, you bring up um, some of the, the really intriguing points about all of this, including, of course, the, the FBI confidential informant number, um, which was brought to the attention of the Warren Commission and has been dismissed by the supporters of the loan nut scenario. But, of course, it does tie into so many of the different threads going on here. So let's bring in some more. I mean, I know this is a bit of a hodgepodge of information, but um, but there is really too much to possibly go through in a short conversation like this. So so let's uh, bring in George DeMorenschild and uh, his connection to all of this. Well, you know, that is absolutely true. Uh, you and I could sit and discuss Lee Harvey Oswald on the next 20 or 30 programs and not cover everything. So I hope that the listeners are bearing with us because we're trying to condense this for them. But the fact is that you can spend literally years studying this man that only lived to be 24 years old. And you could study just from the time that he was 19 to the time he was 24 and probably spend a lifetime doing it if you wanted. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing what has been developed, but most of it, ha- again, has not even been developed by these government agencies. That, that were responsible to investigate it, uh, they were, you know, uh, they, they ignored more information than they collected. Uh, you know, there's, uh, and I'll, I'll do this because a lot of people uh, like to point to it, but there's the, the inference, uh, the, there's the instance of Roger Craig, who was a uh, uh, Dallas County Sheriff uh, deputy, okay? And he claimed to have seen Oswald fleeing in a completely different fashion, uh, there was a lot of claims that Craig made, but let's just talk about the Oswald claims, that he saw Lee Harvey Oswald fleeing on foot to a car. Okay, now according to the official scenario, Oswald turns around and leaves the school book depository, okay, and then proceeds to catch a bus. After catching the bus, uh, the bus gets stuck in traffic. He proceeds to get off the bus, ask for a transfer, by the way, then go to a taxi stand. After going to a taxi stand, he offers his taxi to a woman who's standing there, okay, and then takes the next taxi, takes it six blocks beyond his own house, gets dropped off, then walks back to his rooming house, okay, and then proceeds to leave that rooming house on foot, where, according to the official explanation, he later shoots and kills police officer uh, J.D. Tippett. Okay, and this is a rather odd escape route, I would say, for an assassin. (laughs) But again, not only did uh, Roger Craig see someone departing from there, because a lot of people have said, well, you know, Craig may have been mistaken, or Craig may have been crazy, or he was attention-seeking. One thing uh, I don't believe Craig was doing was attention-seeking, but I have my own reasons for that. But the fact is that uh, when we later study some of the Warren Commission uh, some of the classified things that were in the Warren Commission and uh, some other details that were developed later, Craig is actually corroborated by uh, two witnesses I can think of by name, uh, Helen Forrest and Lloyd Cooper, saw about the same thing and at least three others, including uh, one gentleman who was actually driving with an employee and nearly slammed into the vehicle in question. Um, you know, but... Meanwhile, we're supposed to believe that, like I say again, the guy departs on a bus and goes to a taxi and runs on foot and everything else. Uh, 
you know, the, the fact is that the official story, when you look at it, when you lay it out, it doesn't make sense. And even when you begin to look into Oswald, again, this is another disjointed situation where you can't make heads or tails of what direction, you know, someone is going in. I mean, generally, if you think to yourself, well, I'm going to, uh, you know, hide a rifle, <laughs> okay, I'm going to go down four flights of stairs, I'm confronted by an officer, I'm going to walk four blocks, catch a bus, get off the bus, walk another four blocks, catch a taxi, offer it to a lady first, walk five blocks, uh, you know, past my own rooming house, uh, walking to the rooming house, and then I'm going to get my gun, and I'm going to take off on foot again, and a few minutes later I'm going to shoot an officer which, by the way, he had to cover about nine-tenths of a mile uh, in between there and there. But uh, the interesting thing to me is, you know, if I was planning to be an assassin and I had a rifle and a pistol in my possession, which even the paper trail for the possession and ownership of that is questionable because you have a, a pistol being developed, uh, delivered sorry, to a, uh, to a P.O. box by a company that isn't allowed to deliver things to a P.O. box. You have a, a and, and and by the way, they they demanded half of the uh, amount to be paid up front for any of these types of firearms. That particular company, Railway Express, and uh, according to their own records, they only ever received ten dollars on a thirty dollar pistol. Okay, fine. Then we have another situation where a rifle is delivered to a named person at another PO box where. Uh, the person named is not the person who's allowed to pick up things at the P.O. box. And the proper forms for shipping a firearm through the mail are also nowhere to be found. You know, again and again, you have missing pieces and things that are just not sensible. Um, and, and this occurs all over the place, you know. The other difficulty here, um, you know, just going beyond the scenario. And, and meanwhile, I'm not even talking about his uh, ability to actually fire the weapon because I think it's really irrelevant when you consider the fact that the, the weapon is, is no good anyway. Even the, uh, the individuals, a lot of people say, oh, no, it was a fairly consistent weapon, and the firearms experts said it was. Well, that's not exactly what they say if you read the FBI reports on it. You know, in order to, uh, to fire it, uh, they were afraid that the uh, that the pin wouldn't even hold up the firing pin. They uh, they had to place four metal shims under the scope to keep it from shaking. They found that the scope was entirely defective. And at the end of the day, yeah, it was consistent. It consistently shot high and to the right. Now, uh, when you're firing at a moving target from an elevated position, regardless of whether it was you know a difficult moving target shot which it would have been had it been moving horizontally across this field of vision, as opposed to uh, uh, the direction that it was moving in, you still have the trouble with the elevated position and being able to fire and cycle a bolt-action rifle and, uh, and all these other things. And you're going to do this with a poor weapon. Well, you know, I guess uh, he's really bad with planning because, quite honestly, if I were to take that rifle up into the book depository and only with just the existing clip of bullets, you know, with one round left, I don't know how it is I would expect to uh, either shoot my way out or be able to hold a hostage or anything else in order to make my escape. But it but, doesn't but matter. Charles, his, his prints were found on the weapon. Surely it must have been him. Well, you know, again, when when we examine that, 
Well, here's a curious thing uh, with that. The the individual who's responsible for that, okay, the guy at the the, the ID uh, bureau uh, there uh, who's, <laughs> wow, I can't believe that name is slipping because I was just reading it this morning. But uh, the individual who is responsible for lifting prints there, okay, with, with uh, the Dallas uh, Police Department, doesn't have a print on that rifle in the place where they say it is. This palm print or the, the, the fingerprints. Okay. He sends it to the FBI and they examine it and don't find a print. Okay. It returns to the Dallas, to the Dallas police. All right. Uh, and this all happens over the weekend, by the way. Uh, but after Oswald is dead, it returns to the Dallas police and suddenly there's the print. The print finally enters the record. Now, I don't know about you, but I would assume that if a fingerprint were there, it would have been easier to find, easier to detect, to detect earlier on, you know? And uh, not only that, but you, you also have the, the I mean, there, there's plenty of sloppy police work to go around here, which is another thing that nobody likes to hear, but the fact is that, yeah, there was sloppy police work that just about invalidates things on both sides of, of the issue. <laughs> But that print, I would not trust it. Exactly right. Uh, certainly things that invalidate uh, uh, everything that's going on here. And uh, you've brought up just so much valuable information tonight. So let's just take a short break. And when we come back, we'll wrap up tonight's conversation with some suggested sources for further reading on this subject right here on Corbett Report Radio. Folks, James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio. And here we are in the final few minutes with our special guest tonight, Charles Ocelli, a.k.a. the Blind JFK Researcher at YouTube.com slash BlindJFK. Tonight we're just beginning to scratch the surface of the story of Lee Harvey Oswald, the supposed lone assassin of JFK. And really, uh, all we can do in a conversation like this is just open up some of the doors into the volume, voluminous uh, material out there on Oswald and who he really was. And as, as we've said tonight, it would take a lifetime to really even begin really fleshing this out in any detail. So unfortunately, we can only scratch the surface, and we haven't even begun to talk about Oswald in Mexico or Oswald in the Fair Play for Cuba Committee or... Oswald and uh, his uh, untimely death and uh, Jack Ruby or, or even what Oswald himself had to say in those uh, in those final days of his life when he was un under arrest. Um, just all so many fascinating threads for discussion. But but obviously we can't uh, we can't cover it all here tonight. But I hope we have at least uh, opened up some of the doors, as I say, onto the material that will help you to come to a better understanding of who Oswald may have been and what his role in this may have been. But let's uh, let's take a moment here, Charles, to to just go through. As I say, there is so much material out there, so 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 very much that's been accrued over the last forty-eight years now on this case. And um, of course, there are many many blind alleys uh, that people can go down if they're not careful, and also many great hidden gems that many people might not know about when looking into matters such as Lee Harvey Oswald. So, in the final few minutes here, do you have any suggestions for what people should or should not be looking at in regards to this case? Well, yes, absolutely, and and the mountain is really double-sided because there is a mountain of poor information and there is a mountain of great information. 
Uh, first thing is, the anyone who's interested in the current situation regarding the uh, the ONI records that uh, and the the ability to try and get the oversight committee to uh, get the enforcement of the JFK Records Collection Act, uh, I would suggest that you uh, take a look at uh, Bill Kelly's uh, blog, which is uh, at uh, JFK Counter Coup. Dot blogspot.com. Okay, there's also a Facebook page uh, for this activity. Uh, like I say, we're just trying to get them to follow through on the law, and uh, that's uh, facebook.com uh, slash groups JFK Act Lobby, all one word. Now, those are Internet sites. There's also the uh, AARC, which is the uh, Assassination Archives uh, Record Center, which is a great site. You can read the entire Warren Commission, the HSCA, and the Lopez Report, which was only declassified uh, in the 90s and uh, recently uh, uh, much more declassified. Now, there's there's a plethora of books, uh, again, which some great, some not so great. Uh, one of the best and, and containing, uh, curiously, a very good narrative about Oswald, which explains a great deal in, uh, in very easy-to-understand language, is uh, JFK and the Unspeakable by James Douglas. Uh, of course, uh, Mark Lane has done a great, a great amount of work and has released uh, three books on it. Uh, there's also one of the, well, two, two books that I think are quite underrated, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much by Dick Russell, which provides you with a completely uh, almost unknown source uh, for, for information about Oswald. And this is just Oswald information I'm passing along to you. And also the, uh, the, the book by John Armstrong called Harvey and Lee, which I may not agree with all of his conclusions, but a mountain of research went into. And uh, also you can con- also check out my YouTube site, and I answer questions by video response on there for people that are curious about particular subjects. Excellent. Well, absolutely fascinating. And I have checked out some of your YouTube videos, and I've got one even favorited up on my own YouTube channel. So I hope people will check that out at youtube.com slash blindjfk. Again, a subject that we could go into for, for many, 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 many hours. So let's, uh, let's continue talking about that on another night. Charles Ocelli, thanks for joining us on tonight's program. Thank you and very th- much. Thank you. And thank you to all of you out there for listening. I am James Corbett, and I'm asking you to join me again tomorrow night for another edition of Corbett Report Radio.